You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later we'll ask what's next for the people of Gaza as they try to rebuild after 50 days of bombardment and conflict with Israel. But we begin in Scotland where the outcome of next week's referendum on independence is now too close to call. One poll of the weekend put the yes side ahead for the first time. Other polls show the no side in the lead, but everybody agrees that there's been a big shift towards the pro-independence camp and that the momentum is on the yes side. In response to the tightening polls, the No campaign, a coalition of Labour, Conservatives and Liberal Democrats, is promising the swift transfer of major new powers to Edinburgh if Scotland votes no. But will it be enough to turn the tide? And what are the consequences for the rest of the United Kingdom and for Ireland if Scotland votes yes? To discuss all this, I'm joined from Edinburgh by Alex Massey, who writes for The Spectator, by our London editor, Mark Hennessy, and here in Dublin by Paul Gillespie, an Irish Times columnist. Mark Hennessy, could you take us through exactly what these new powers are that are being promised by the no side? Well, there's an issue about that. A few months ago, we saw documents from Labour, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats all offering greater powers for Scotland in terms of raising tax, in terms of borrowing. Now, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats were the most ambitious. Labour, on the other hand, was less so. And that reflects opposition between Scottish Labour and uh, Scottish Labour MPs and the Labour leadership in London, who the latter two taking a dimmer view of uh, uh, devolution over the years than the the, the Labour organisation in Scotland itself. Now what is being promised on the back of a day march effectively by Gordon Brown, who has accelerated uh, events, he is saying that there will be a convention launched immediately after a no vote in the September 19th, if that happens, and that that would produce an agreed uh, list of proposals by the end of November, and legislation would go in draft form before the House of Commons by uh, Burns Night on January 25th. Now, as a result of that, uh, what is not absolutely clear yet will be the exact terms of the agreement on new powers uh, to Scotland. So people are being given a guarantee of a process that will deliver new powers without being given a guarantee on exactly what those new powers will be. The Yes campaigners have just dismissed this new proposal as a panic measure and uh, they say it's just not going to sway anybody. Do you think it will be enough to sway enough wavering voters? It will sway some, there's no doubt, particularly because it has been ventilated by Brown with increasing passion. And we're going to see Brown becoming the effective leader of the Save the Union campaign between now and uh, Thursday week. Uh, Rather than Alistair Darling, you are going to see Brown being the the lead. Uh, Charlie Kennedy from the Liberal Democrats will also be taking a more high-profile role. Clearly, when you look at the polls, there is still a soft yes element uh, to them. There are people who can be uh, snatched away from the yes vote, despite the fact that they have, to an extent, moved in, in not insignificant, in very significant numbers, to uh, supporting the idea of independence. But if you go back two years ago, many Scots wanted a two-question referendum. They wanted the option of being able to vote for independence, but they would have preferred an option for of extra devolution. And if, at that time, the devolution offer had been sufficient, sufficiently Uh, extensive, that would have been the one that would have been guaranteed to have been accepted by Scots. Alex Massey, is this new offer of Devo Max, is it a panic measure? 
Well, there's an element to which its presentation and the timing of it reflects a certain amount of panic. Uh, now, speaking to people inside the Better Together campaign today, uh, I was assured, um, although this may, of course, be the uh, best-case scenario spin in which they can put uh, on, which they can put on these matters, that this isn't pointless panic. Uh, if one can put it like that, it's, it's panic with a purpose. Um, the purpose is to remind Scots of the enormity of the choice they face next Thursday uh, and to convince people that, you know, come on, uh, really think about this extremely carefully uh, because independence isn't for Christmas, it's forever. Uh, it's a massive leap into the dark, into the unknown with all the risks and uncertainties that come with that. By contrast, um, you know, there will be change. It's not a choice between independence and the status quo. The exact form of that change, yes, remains to be determined. But, uh, but the UK as a whole is going to go through a, a prolonged period of constitutional wrangling that will affect Scotland, um, but also Wales and Northern Ireland, even London and the English regions, that everything is up for grabs. The old ways of doing things have come to an end. Now, that might well, I think, um, help persuade some voters. Um, I think other things will as well, that the, you know, Mark Carney, again, casting some doubt today, the governor of the Bank of England, on the prospects of a currency union, uh, which is what Alex Salmond thinks would be in the best interests of both Scotland and the Rump UK in the event of independence. I think we will see serious um, examination of some of the SNP's economic platform, which, although that's obviously only one possible future of many possible futures after independence, is the one that's been presented to the people uh, by the Scottish Government as though it's the most probable one. I think we'll see a lot of forensic examination of, of whether those numbers really add up. Um, it's all part of a, a process designed to, to persuade Scots that, that this is something they should really think uh, extremely carefully about, that it's okay to, be, um, to, to, to think about, yes, to flirt with independence, but the, the best and, and safest course is to remain wed to the union. Uh, we will hear a lot more, I think, of an old Labour slogan that divorce is an expensive business. And, uh, you know, uh, there will be uh, a sense in which this is. It does reflect a certain amount of panic because certainly the most recent opinion polls have taken a lot of people, particularly in London, by surprise. And you see David Cameron and uh, Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg uh, are, are abandoning Prime Minister's questions tomorrow and coming up to Edinburgh um, to, uh, if you like, um, suggest or reinforce their uh, determination to save the union. Uh, and of course, that looks does look like um, uh, a panic measure, a response uh, to, to the Yes campaign's success in the polls. But it also does, I think... Uh, um, it is designed at any rate to impress voters with the, the seriousness of the moment. And to that extent, um, as I say, they, they hope that it is useful panic rather than, than uh, headless chicken yes. panic. Uh, Alex, can we just talk about those polls? Because uh, throughout this campaign, for months and months, the no side has been consistently ahead and the only issue has been how far ahead. Are they miles ahead or are they just a bit ahead? And now uh, it's, uh, it's clearly neck and neck. Uh, all the polls seem to be pointing in, in that direction with this great surge towards the yes side. What actually has happened? Well, part of it um, was that in the second of their two televised debates, Alex Salmond won a more convincing victory in the second of those uh, debates than Alistair Darling had won a victory in the first of them. 
And I think there's also the thing that you have to remember that, that independence or the idea of independence has always had um, a significant attraction, a significant appeal. There have always been many people who would say, even when it was a long way from being considered or top of the, the, the political process, um, uh, a lot of people who would say, I quite like the idea, but I'm just not sure we could really do it. Um, or would say, well, you know, if all things were, were equal and I was convinced we could really make a good economic go of it, then yes, I, I like the idea. Um, and so in that respect, there have always been people open to it. And there have always been people who are persuadable. Uh, and they've just needed a reason um, to be persuaded. And so we've seen a bit of that, I think, um, the latent appeal of independence of Scotland as its own uh, uh, independent state taking its place as a full member of the family of nations. You know, has an intrinsic appeal to a lot of people. It tugs on a lot of heartstrings. And of course, for for, for Labour voters, particularly um, in, in the west of Scotland and central Scotland, the SNP uh, and the Scottish Government and the Yes campaign have targeted them relentlessly. They've said that, look, you know, the Labour Party in England isn't interested in you guys anymore. The Labour Party in England is wedded to a, quote, neoliberal, unquote, orthodoxy that um, is, is extremely, belongs to a different political tradition than the sort of social democracy and socialism to which you aspire here in Scotland. And so it's made a, a, a concerted pitch on that, on items such as the NHS, uh, welfare, poverty, that the, the way for Scotland to prosper is to follow its own path, and that Scotland and England in particular now have such diverging uh, political traditions, if you like, that they can no longer sensibly be reconciled under the same roof. And, and I think we've seen some impact on, of that. Um, you know, they've had some success with that. For a long time, it looked as though perhaps only 15 to 20 percent of habitual Labour voters would endorse independence. The most recent polls suggest that figure has crept up to 30 percent. And should it ever hit 40 percent, then, um, then the union is done for. Uh, Paul Gillespie, it now looks like uh, the United Kingdom is heading for some kind of constitutional convulsion, no matter what way Scotland votes. No, you're right. Um, the arrangements that have been there since the Second World War uh, um, uh, are com- becoming un- 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 or unscrambling. Um, uh, the glue that's held that the, the polity together, uh, the old empire uh, tradition, the de- decolonization, you then got new glue added by the welfare state, uh, the uh, tradition of Protestantism is receding, uh, tradition of, of, of martial involvement um, uh, is changing, um, and it needs re- reorganisation. And, and therefore, whether it comes by way of the shock of a yes uh, and Scottish independence or, or, or a no, uh, I think it, it's, that's certainly true. Uh, the panic measures being put forward now are, are remarkably uh, late in the day and uh, ill-prepared. Uh, but at the same time, this is a very exciting, it's a very exciting um, uh, period, a moment, uh, not only for Scotland, but perhaps for the, the whole of the UK. Uh, there's a realisation now that the uh, political arrangement, constitutional arrangement, need re- need refashioning, and that's a constructive thing with with opportunities. Uh, one can see uh, arguments coming 
as we're hearing just in this discussion uh, about the uh, the uh, the need to, to to give more time to prepare more uh, better better arrangements one could see that there might be a contingent no and if it wasn't possible to work out arrangements that were that suited uh, deeper devolution for Scotland you could see the question very rapidly being reopened so in my perspective see even if it's a no now uh, I I would be inclined to think that in five years time Scotland probably will be independent uh, Alex Massey can I just bring you uh, in on that uh, what Paul was describing there about this uh, about the elements of the glue that have been holding this policy together that they're unscrambling and there's kind of nothing anybody can do about that I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I mean, it is certainly uh, clear that, you know, if you like, the, from a Scottish perspective, uh, the things the Union offered most uh, surely all the way back in 1707 were economic opportunity, access to trade and, and bigger markets, uh, national security, and, uh, and of course, the, the security of the Protestant succession. Uh, now, in different ways, those are either now irrelevant or can be guaranteed in other venues, in other forums, other international arenas. Um, and so uh, from a Scottish point of view, uh, you can certainly make a credible case that, um, that from this strictly rational perspective, the, the union is past its sell-by date. Uh, I think what we also see, however, is, is a, a reawakening of uh, uh, a real of the realization that the United Kingdom has always been a very odd uh, kind of nation state um, because it it is for a long time insisted on just a you know a single parliament at Westminster but um, a multi nation state a a state of unions rather than a unitary union state um, and as a result of that greater realization that actually the constituent parts of the United Kingdom each of their own traditions their own interests um, I think we will see a, a, a loosening in time of those Westminster bonds. I mean, obviously, we saw that in terms of devolution uh, 15 years ago, but that will continue. I think we will see um, uh, an end to uh, the, the notion that there can be a one-size-fits-all um, kind of approach uh, within the UK, so that Wales will want to have the ability to do things its own way in a lot of different arenas. Um, and similarly, I would expect that to happen with Northern Ireland as well. And I think we will see uh, calls for, for increased powers for, for London's assembly as well. And perhaps, as I say, who knows, in time for some of the English regions too. I mean, I see no particular reason why Yorkshire can't have an assembly of its own, for instance. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that might not happen, but all things suddenly seem possible. Mark Hennessy, do you think that the Westminster political establishment is intellectually prepared for the scale of constitutional change that looks to be heading down the tracks here, no matter what? No, it's not. And and the fact that they've come so late to realising that there have been there has been a serious issue in Scotland is proof of that fact. Um, the difficulty that there is is that they, there isn't an agreement even within the regions as to how a devolution uh, throughout the British Isles should happen. It's one thing to have uh, an opinion in Wales, which clearly now wants more powers. Uh, Scotland obviously does. But if you go back 10 years ago, the northeast of England was offered an assembly. It turned it down. 
wrong, uh, a, a decision that most people up there now deeply regret. Uh, last year, we saw a succession of offerings of, low, of city mayors uh, to people spread throughout the regions in England were rejected. Uh, the question really is whether the referendum in Scotland, the debate about Scottish finances, whether that's driven home to uh, English voters that there is uh, an increasing uh, uh, imbalance in the constitutional arrangements uh, uh, throughout Britain and whether that will in fact lead to a demand for greater powers. What we've seen so far from George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, has been talk about a divesting authority over budgets to some of the bigger cities and encouraging them to cooperate together. But that is a devolution of, of, of cash, not giving anybody powers to set separate legislation. Uh, Paul Gillespie, Ireland has been mostly silent throughout this referendum. What are the implications for this island of either a yes or a no vote? major implications, major consequences. Uh, if it's a yes, the north, in the north of Ireland, uh, unionism there loses a lo- It's one of its major cultural anchors. Uh, the preoccupation that there would be uh, between Edinburgh and London in negotiating independence would take very much the eyes off the ball in, in the north. Um, and we're already facing into a very difficult period uh, within, within the north um, in, 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 in managing the existing powers that are there. Uh, if it's a yes, uh, there would also be deeper devolution in England, uh, it seems to me, in Wales and also in Northern Ireland. The deeper the devolution, the more they have to disagree about. So the whole formula may need, uh, you know, it comes up for re- re-examination as Peter Robinson has been arguing today. If it's a no, many of the same consequences apply because the deeper devolution uh, that, that is going to be discussed uh, will, will must involve, because of symmetrical arrangements, uh, the North as well, and the same problems will apply. As for the Republic, uh, the Republic has been... Um, uh, diplomatically neutral, one can understand that, but given the the very the, the relationship with London, uh, there's a, a a strong case if it's a yes for, for this to be welcomed. I think the Irish Times editorial today is saying uh, saying that very clearly, uh, and I think it, that sh- that sh- that should be the case. Uh, if I, I think there's been a lot of scenario planning <laughs> uh, 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 f- for the either the outcome either way, uh, and it's it's getting a lot of reportage uh, in the diplomatic circuits. Uh, but I think it's a mistake that it hasn't been adequately debated politically, both in the North and here, because the, the knock-on effects are going to be very large, including the potential European effects, because, again, the outcome, yes or no, is likely to affect the British vote, which is, seems to me forthcoming uh, in their general election, but then on the European question. Alex, uh, Messi, a yes vote is now uh, a more real uh, possibility than it has appeared to be before now. If... Scotland does vote yes. Who's going to get the blame politically in Britain? Um, well, uh, the first casualty will be David Cameron, I suppose, in as much as he is Prime Minister and it will be perceived, uh, or suddenly his critics within the Conservative Party, of which he, there is uh, no shortage, um, will use a yes vote as a, as a means of weakening Cameron. Um, uh, and, and as the sitting Prime Minister, obviously, he, he has to sort of carry the can, if you like. Um, but it would be a mistake to, to view it as, as Cameron as the man who lost Scotland. 
Scotland because it was never his to either keep or lose. You know, it's a, a question for the people of Scotland. Um, it is it is they who bear the responsibility um, and, if you like, the blame for the outcome, whichever way uh, it, it, it goes. Um, more generally, however, you know, the, the people who will really get it in the neck of the Scottish Labour Party, uh, they will be the ones who, who are perceived by their unionist allies to have really taken their eye off the ball, that it will be it will be it will be them who will have to carry the burden of responsibility because the Better Together campaign, although it has been in many cases funded by Tory sources, has been run by Labour people uh, in Scotland. And it's not been a campaign that has uh, that will be remembered fondly or as an example to be used in political science classes of how to run a, a campaign effectively. Um, I, I think that there will be a, a real crisis for the Labour Party north and south of the border in the event of a yes vote. Um, and that fundamentally, if, if, if Scotland votes uh, for independence, then it will be the Labour Party that is seen to have lost Scotland, even if that in turn, as I say, is, is a little bit of an unfair way of characterising these things. But, um, but it, it will be Labour who, who suffer more uh, from that yes vote than anybody else. Alex, you're a unionist. You're hoping for a no vote next week. But can you imagine, if there is a yes vote, can you imagine uh, positives about the possibilities of an independent Scotland? Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, there is no reason why, uh, assuming non-lunatic governance, an independent Scotland can't be a, a successful and prosperous country. Um, uh, no reason why it can't be a happy and contented country either. Um, you know, the only thing preventing that in many ways is the sort of indus- in- industriousness um, and foolishness of, uh, of, of the decisions that we, that we make and so on, whatever. Um, you know, the, it doesn't have to end in tears or disaster. Um, you know, I think even uh, staunch unionists should accept that although much was gained in 1707, something important, something vital was lost too. It was the end of an old song. Well, the the end of Britain will be the end of another old song. Um, and although I think it is quite possible that some things would be gained by independence, I think it's quite possible that Scotland could be a well-governed country. Um, I think it's also the case that something would be lost. And although it's quite difficult to, to express that loss because it would be felt, I think, often in a sort of psychological sense rather than in a, a political or public policy um, sense, that, that, that loss would, I think, still be significant. Um, but there's no reason, that, there's no law of politics or economics that says that an independent Scotland has to be a basket case. Uh, I mean, Alex Hammond is quite right to say that it would begin its life as an independent country in circumstances considerably more um, uh, prosperous uh, and liable to lead to good outcomes than has been the case for many other countries that have undergone, um, you know, their own journeys of independence. I mean, one only has to compare the the example of Scotland in 2014 with, you know, with um, with what's now the Republic of Ireland, um, you know, 90 years ago, and to see that Scotland is is better equipped and better placed to start life as an independent country than the free state was. Uh, Mark Hennessy, finally, what are you expecting for the final week of campaigning in Scotland? A much more uh, visible campaign by Gordon Brown. Uh, obviously, we have uh, the visit by Cameron Clegg and Miliband to Scotland tomorrow. Probably not the smartest idea in the world, given the way in which English uh, politicians are viewed north of the border. But having said that, if they don't do it, then they'll be accused of, of ignoring the issue so they can't win. 
And clearly we're going to see more and more efforts by the Scottish National Party to tug at the heartstrings of Scottish voters. And every uh, declaration and comment made by people in, in England and Wales and elsewhere will be uh, turned to in a relentless fight for every single vote. This is uh, All of the indications are that this is going to go down to the wire. The le- latest poll we have suggests that there are still up to one in five uh, of those who will vote who are still to make up their mind. There is still a lot to play for. Mark Hennessy, Alex Massey and Paul Gillespie, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The ceasefire in Gaza agreed last month between Israel and the Palestinian factions has been holding, but the longer-term outlook remains uncertain, as important issues have still to be agreed in talks in Cairo. Meanwhile, the people of Gaza have started to rebuild their lives after 50 days of bombardment that killed more than 2,000 Palestinians, most of them civilians. Our correspondent, Lara Marlowe, has been reporting from Gaza for the past week, and she joins me on the line now. Lara, could you describe the present condition of the people that you met in Gaza? Uh, hi, Dennis. The conditions are, are terrible. Uh, there was a, a UN study that just found that 17,000 homes, that 17,000 families, were completely destroyed. Uh, there were many thousands more that were partially destroyed. People are still living in schools. Um, some of them are mo- have moved back into homes that have, you know, gaping holes in the walls and, and you know, big cracks in the ceilings, and, you know, they're basically falling apart. Uh, the Israelis bombed the uh, Gaza power plant. The only electricity which people are getting is coming from Israel for only four hours a day, and these are in uh, temperatures of more than 30 degrees. Uh, so it, it, it's hot and, and sticky, and when there's no electricity, there's no water pumped, of course, so people don't have water, they don't have electricity. Uh, I, I think the worst condition of all for people is the same that it has been for the last seven years, which is they are living in a big prison. Uh, it's very striking when you go through the Eras Crossing. There are um, watchtowers, barbed wire on top of 30-foot-high walls. Uh, you have to go through... Uh, at least a half dozen sort of sealed compartments and turnstiles, and then you get to an enormous steel door, you wait for that to open, and then you end up in a, in a sort of cage, literally a cage, which has, which has uh, wire, um, you know, like chicken coop uh, mesh on either side of it and a ceiling on top of it, and you walk for a kilometer through that cage until you get to the first FATA checkpoint. And after the FATA checkpoint, there's a, there's a Hamas checkpoint. Uh, and it, so it, it quite literally is a prison. A lot of the people I met told me they want to leave Gaza. Uh, they were very eager to... Actually, I know one young man I talked to said he has 10 friends at least 10, he said probably more, who in the, in the past two or three years have escaped through the border with Egypt, gone to Alexandria, paid $3,000 to, to a middleman, and got on a boat to Italy, and then the boat sort of dumped them on a beach in Italy. So there, there's this hemorrhage of anyone who can leave, people who, people who can leave do. The only people I found who didn't want to leave were, by and large, more educated, more affluent, had salaried jobs, and were really, really dedicated to staying and trying to improve life in Gaza, but they were a minority. And now you hit on an issue, Lara, that is at the at the heart of this uh, ceasefire deal, because the Palestinian side agreed to the ceasefire in return of for an easing of the blockade of Gaza. To what extent are you seeing any easing of the blockade? Uh, very- 
very little easing. Um, the government of uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the new president of Egypt, well, for the last year, uh, does not like Hamas. And he, part of the understanding was that he would open up the crossing at Rafah on the Egyptian border. Uh, they're being very, very strict about who they let through. They're only letting through uh, Palestinians with visas to third countries or, Palestinian, or people with foreign passports. And even those people are actually escorted to the airport in Cairo and uh, to make sure they leave. They don't want Palestinians coming into Egypt. Uh, they're not, it's still very, very difficult for students, for example, to, to, to leave through Rafa. So very little on that crossing. On the Erez crossing, um, I must have seen when I went through going in maybe one or two people and more or less the same coming out a couple of days ago. There's very little movement at the Erez crossing. A Palestinian who wants to go into Israel uh, must go through a very long procedure of applying for permission and getting a permit and, and so on. And then if he does go through Israel, for example, to get to the West Bank, he's considered a suspect by Hamas and is interrogated when he comes back. Uh, so there's, there's, there's very little opening that way. I went out with fishermen on fishing boats uh, at dawn on Sunday morning, and the fishermen, actually this was understood to be the only gain of the ceasefire. They, they had been told that the uh, limit, the geographical limit of, of you know, how far out they could go fishing would be extended. I think internationally, if I'm not mistaken, it's 12 miles. Israel has for the last... Uh, several years, let them go out six miles, and they had understood they were going to be allowed to go out eight miles. Uh, but in actual fact, they're not. It's the same as before. As soon as they hit the five-mile mark, uh, the Israeli gunboats start shooting at them. And the problem is that the, in, in so close to shore, the waters are all fished out. They said the first two or three days after uh, the ceasefire, there were a lot of fish because nobody had been fishing for 51 days. Uh, but after the first two or three days and that, that sort of initial bounty, it's back to, to square one and the fish are few and far between and, and the fishermen are hungry. So uh, in terms of the, of the blockade being eased, very little. I mean, one of the huge questions is building materials. As I said, 17,000 homes have been totally destroyed, according to the United Nations. People desperately need, want building materials so they can reconstruct. Uh, and the problem is Israel will not allow cement, cement blocks, other building, really necessary building materials to go into Gaza because they, they say that Hamas will use these to build their tunnels uh, and, you know, under the border into Israel so they can attack Israel. So you're left with, you know, I think it's still at least 100,000, it was 400,000 displaced homeless people and no way to rebuild their homes. Uh, so all of these questions really have to be addressed if life is to improve for the Gazans. On the political front, uh, Lara, the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, warned Hamas this week that they had to let go of power in Gaza if the Palestinian unity government is to work. Is there any sign of that happening? Well, what I, I only heard the, the Hamas side of it because Fatah is not very present in Gaza, but the Hamas version of this story is that this unity government, which was agreed upon in April and was actually established on June 2nd, uh, basically exists in Ramallah, in the West Bank. It does not exist in Gaza. There are three uh, government ministers only present 
in Gaza, and they're not doing anything. They sort of go into their offices and twiddle their thumbs, according to Hamas. So in effect, what you have is a sort of Hamas government, or a shadow government, if you like, where Ismail Haniyeh in theory is no longer prime minister, but everyone knows that he's basically still in charge. Um, I'll give you another example. I interviewed two Hamas officials. One had been the spokesman for the interior ministry, the internal security, uh, and he was a specialist on collaborators with Israel. And when I interviewed him, he said, you can't, I'm no longer the spokesman since the unity government. So in theory, he's been replaced by someone from Ramallah, but the person from Ramallah isn't there. So he's still doing the job. He just doesn't have the title anymore. The same with a government spokesman, uh, a fellow called uh, Al Ghusan. He, he um, is in theory no longer the government spokesman, but when you want to know what the Hamas government thinks, he's still the same person who you go and see. Uh, and, and actually, uh, Ghusan said to me, you know, we're waiting. We said we're giving them time. We've given them three months already. They haven't assumed their responsibilities. Let them come and do it. So, you know, on the one hand, Mahmoud Abbas is blaming uh, Hamas for, for not letting uh, Fatah take over or Fatah. They're, so they're meant to be actually apolitical technocrats. And uh, on the other hand, Hamas is saying, well, come and take over. We're waiting for you. Uh, so there is a kind of void there. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that I, I found... Uh, Gazans very angry uh, with the acting prime minister of this unity government, uh, who they said did not ever at any point make a speech during the bombardment of Gaza. He was sitting in Ramallah, and uh, the only the only mention he made of it when he was um, questioned by journalists was, "Well, this is causing a lot of problems for tourism in the West Bank, and this really upset people in Gaza." So there, there's a lot of tension between Hamas. And Fatah, uh, again, still, I think those tensions dissipated somewhat during the war. People told me that during the war they were all together, they were united. Um, but that's all coming to the surface again. What were people in Gaza saying to you about Hamas? Uh, was Hamas getting much of the blame for the war at all? No, uh, they weren't, surprisingly enough. And I'm, I asked dozens of people, and to my surprise, because certainly in Israel and the West, everyone is speculating that people are going to turn against Hamas because Hamas is bringing suffering upon them. And that certainly was not what I found. I found very strong support for, for Hamas uh, to the point where I, I was really surprised and kept asking people why, you know, why is there so much support for Hamas. Um, a political scientist whom I interviewed said that whenever there is a war, whenever there are prisoner exchanges, support for Hamas always shoots up. Uh, there was um, an opinion poll published in Haaretz, uh, the Israeli newspaper, a couple of days ago, um, about an, a, poll, a poll conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, which showed that 88% of Palestinians rated Hamas positively and 94% expressed satisfaction with Hamas's military performance. So the popularity, which I sensed and, and, and found apparently is genuine. Uh, tell me, Lara, uh, finally, what are the most important things that have to happen now if Gaza is to get back on its feet? The, I mean, the, the siege, the siege, the siege, the, the blockade. Uh, these people, they, the, Gaza needs to breathe. They need to be able to import uh, what they need to, to build and to, to eat and you know, clothe themselves. They need to have a more normal life. Uh, they need to be able to export uh, now, Mahmoud Abbas has a plan. He's going to the UN I, on the 15th of September. He's going to demand a, um, a plan. He's, he wants nine month, within nine months 
a plan for full Palestinian independence within three years. And he has threatened the Israelis, uh, saying that if that doesn't happen, he will go to the, he will, Palestine will join the International Criminal Court and will uh, file a lawsuit against Israel for atrocities in the war. Hamas 100% supports this, despite all the tension between them. They're singing from the, the same hymn sheet on, on that question. Uh, so there, there could be some very interesting political developments in the next few weeks or months. Lara Marlowe, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>